Welcome, everybody. We're here with episode four of the Talking Adapted PE podcast. Things are a little different this week because of the holiday weekend, so we're coming to you on a Tuesday. As always, please be sure to go and rate and follow the show on your favorite podcast platforms. This week, we've got a great guest as we have Eric Cole coming to us from Rochester, New York. Eric teaches a specially designed program to students that are designated as social and emotionally disturbed. He provides great insight on the benefits of consistent teaching, connecting with students, and working with paraeducators. I think you're going to really enjoy the show. Episode four starts now. Welcome to the latest episode of the Talking Adapted PE podcast. I'm here with Eric Cole, who's coming to us from Rochester, New York. Eric, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what your job sort of generally looks like? Yeah, so um, I'm in Rochester, New York. I'm actually in a suburb called East Rochester. I teach at the Bird Morgan School, which is part of the Monroe Number 1 BOCE School District. I've been teaching here. This is my ninth year total at this school. Our school is a center-based program for students in grades kindergarten through eighth, and we service students with social-emotional behavioral, and it's just a wide variety of students that we have from a wide variety of locations all across Western New York. Now, because I'm from New York originally, Eric, I do, I know I'm familiar with the BOCE setup. Can you maybe give a broad overview of what the BOCE setup is? Because I think it's unique to education, and I don't think our listeners are going to be overly familiar with it. Yeah. So I know BOCES is a big thing in all across New York State, and it actually stands for a Board of Cooperating Educational Services. It is a school district, but what's different is it's not a physical school district. It doesn't represent a town or a village, but it's a group of school districts that come together to create a district. And we provide services for all sorts of students. Uh, we do provide services for students with disabilities, ranging from kindergarten all the way up to transition to 21 years old. But we also provide uh, vocational training and other services for students in other school districts. It's really cool. Uh, little personal caveat, my dad was a principal of a BOCES back literally decades ago now um, in Oneonta, New York. So I do have a little bit of background with it. Now, you touched on the fact that you teach a social emotional population. Now, how many kids are you serving on a weekly basis? Like, do you have a do you call it a caseload or is it just you serve every kid at the school? What's it look like? Yeah, so it's we we're a pretty unique situation. So we are a kindergarten through eighth grade school. I am one of three PE teachers here. I work with students in kindergarten through fourth grade. I really enjoy working with the, the, the little ones. Every student that comes to my school has been referred to by their home district. And every student that does come to our school has a, an IEP. Within that are all the, the basic stuff that we're all familiar with, the benchmarks, goals throughout the year. And that's what we work with. So every student that comes to my school has uh, adapted phys ed. And to them, it's just a, a phys ed program because they're already receiving all the services. I'm glad you touched on the IEP part. That seems to be a little bit different as I talk to more and more people. When they come to you with an IEP, you know, what's that look like? And in my district, what happens is I, I immediately go and it tells me they have adapted phys ed and it actually lays out an amount of service every year that they would get by hours. And then I'll check their present levels and then I'll check their goals out. And if they have a recent assessment report had been done, I'll obviously read the assessment report. In New York or kids that are referred to your school, what does this adapted PE look like on the IEP? Yeah, ours is a little different. Any student that comes to my school when they when they are accepted and they go through the intake process, the, the IEP changes a little bit for their phys ed because they they start receiving they start receiving a specially designed PE program. So I do not have the kind of the standard benchmarks or year-long goals or semester goals for the students before they come to my school in their home district. They might have those benchmarks. They might have those goals laid out. But when they do come to my school, they automatically receive a 
adaptive phys ed program. So I am just trying my best to follow state and uh, national standards to try to get them the best program they can. That makes a lot of sense. If a student comes to you and your program, meaning the BOCES program, has accomplished its goal that the student could be matriculated back to their home district, do you do anything to the IEP to amend it so that they are going back with an adapted phys ed service on their IEP? Yeah, it varies on a case-to-case basis. When a student is able to go back to district, they're sometimes transitioned into a like a 611, a 1211, or a 1511 program. Very rarely do our students make a jump from my school back to a gen ed kind of curriculum. So there's there's communication between their home district and and myself. We'll, we'll write kind of just reports, and then it's up to the CSE to kind of decide what the, the student needs to receive on the uh, when they go back to their district. I just heard you throw out some jargon that I'm pretty familiar with, but again, I'm not sure others are. You threw out 611 and 1211. You're referring to the student-to-staff ratio there, correct? Yep. So in my building, um, all our classes are 6-1-1. So we have a uh, six, no more than six students in the classroom, one classroom teacher. There's also going to be a paraeducator and sometimes a, a teaching assistant, which is a, a teacher. It's, it's kind of a step up from our paras. They, they go through a little accreditation process. They're able to provide instruction if a student needs to be outside their, their classroom. When, I, when the classes come down to me, when I see them in PE, it's six students. There's myself, and sometimes there'll be one para or two paras, depending on the student's needs. And that's how we roll. Is it safe to say then, because you're doing specially designed, uh, because on my daily, right, I'm supporting kids that are going to general PE most often. So uh, they do have like adapted phys ed and yours is obviously, like you said, specially designed. So is it safe to say that maybe your assessment process doesn't look like mine where I'm giving things like the TGMD3 or the C-tape or anything like that? Or are those assessments you're using with your kids? No, that's not something I use. Um, I'm familiar with them from my prior experience, but it's not something I use on a day-to-day basis. I'm using a lot of things that I've created, a lot of rubrics and checklists. I like to do some peer stuff. I try to get the paras involved during my assessment process, but because they, they come in with an IEP, I don't have to do a lot of screening process that you might be familiar with. Yeah, that's something uh, I encounter on a regular basis. You just brought up paras and that's, you know, we all work with paras, whether we're doing specially designed PE like yourself or adapted phys ed in traditional sort of school setting. W- what advice do you have to offer teachers in working with paras? It's definitely a give and take and building that relationship. I'm fortunate and being in my setting is I'm here every day for the full school day. And so the, the staff that I'm working with. So we, we really build a relationship, get to know each other. It's, I'm, I'm big personally on relationships with my staff, with my students. I feel when you have a strong working relationship, a positive one, that you can get a lot more out of them. It's just kind of a give and take. And they have a really tough job. They're with, their, with, with some students all day long. And some students are easy to work with. Some are going to be more difficult to work with. So they get, they get a lot a lot thrown at them, being able to kind of build them up and, and, and provide that feedback when they need it or give them a little bit of guidance during the day, during the class is, is challenging, but uh, I've definitely learned as I've went along. It is such an important relationship. You're absolutely right. And it is a give and take. And I know as I've tried to get better over the years, I used to make the mistake of you see me doing something. So therefore you should know that that's what I want. Right. But that it doesn't work. Communication doesn't work that way. And so I've, no, had, to like, better, think, I've had to get better think, to be like, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. Right. Yeah. You would think that they would, they would pick up on certain things like, Hey, this is how I worked with a student. Like once you figure it out, it's like, no, Hey, when I'm doing a, this skill with them, I like to you know hold their wrist and guide them through the underhand throw. So being just as explicit with my students, with the staff, but finding that, that, that right way to not seem like, I'm talking to him like a student, like, but then, then you have to be explicit because they might not know how to do these skills that we're asking them to do. 
That's exactly right. And then let's be really fair to our parents too. They're underpaid for the work they're doing. Oh, yeah. certainly. It can, and you, as you said, so if you if you have a kid that is compliant, you know your day might go really smoothly. If you have a student that tends to be less compliant, your day might be you might be in a highly sort of stressed state. And so it, you have to be aware of that when they walk in the gym. Uh, here in San Diego, my population is is interesting. So on the first few episodes, Eric, I don't know if you had a chance to listen, but the guests all talked about working with students with sort of significant physical needs, mm-hmm. and and that's not a population I serve very regularly. I can actually only think of one student on my caseload right now at my high school that would fall in that category. So the majority of my population is students with autism, students with intellectual disabilities. I have had students with Down syndrome in the past. I don't this year, but I know of students coming to me from middle school that I will then be back with with that. So what sort of disabilities are you working with at the, uh, your BOCES program? Yeah, we have a wide range. Kind of the, the way to kind of clump them all together is um, our students have social, emotional, and behavioral disabilities. Um, Our students come from a wide variety of backgrounds. I have students from an urban situation, rural, and suburban. We service over 60 different school districts in my school alone, and that's only from about 150 kids. So it's a wide variety of students. And on their IEPs, you'll see everything from speech language delay up to an OHI to emotional disturbance. So it's a wide variety of students, very little to they have actual physical disability. Through their academic careers to this point, they have shown that they have there's a lot of delays for them as far as motor delays, gross, gross motor, fine motor, motor planning, just because they they haven't seen success in an academic setting. So everything that goes on top of it is kind of delayed and, and working through that, their skill set is great, but also having them to build the confidence with them so they can learn, they can participate in a PE setting, in any game setting, in any skill is definitely the next challenge. Is it fair to say that your students often exhibit difficult behaviors? Oh, certainly. It could be anything from just non-compliance, like I don't want to do this, to there might be physical aggression, verbal aggression. So being able to kind of navigate each student is going to be a little a, a different challenge and, and, and knowledge they have to have of these students. Just kind of working through what I can do to make them successful. And I think that's where building a relationship with my students. I have to know a little bit about them. I like to, to know their stories as they come into my gym. And that way I can work with them and find their interests and find what they, they enjoy doing and build upon that. Knowing your students is so critical. I think, you know, I tell people that the PE part of it is actually the least important part of what I'm actually doing. You know, for me, it's really important that I build an environment and I do a lot of inclusion actually. So it goes with both my population and the general ed population, but that, that, that it feels like a safe, inclusive and welcoming environment. And they, at least look forward to coming to PE. They may not love the activity, but do they look forward to coming to it? That's something that's really important in my teaching. And it sounds like it is to you too. Oh, for sure. A lot of my students have a lot of trauma in their backgrounds, in their young lives, which is, it's really hard to see in these little ones. So being that positive role model, being that positive adult, being that trusted adult in their lives is, is really important for me. And just creating a space where they can come and talk or they can kind of just be kids. Cause oftentimes these young ones have to be more than just a kid when they're home, they might be watching their, they could be eight years old, but they have to watch their baby brother. They could be 10 years old and they're trying to get food on the table. So they're doing things that we had no idea young kids were doing. So being able to let them be kids and and let them listen and vent. And sometimes it might feel like they're just screaming at you, but that's what they need to do. And just taking the time to listen and say, it's okay. And like, I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry you're going through this, but let's let's see if we can do it together. That's great advice. I should probably even remember that as a parent, to be honest with you. So um, 
Can you walk me through then what a lesson sort of looks like for you? And it can just be general. I'm not asking you to like lay out a lesson, but what I'm curious about is I'm, I would suspect that you have to put a lot of front loading into your planning to be prepared for these types of unique needs that you face in your job. Can you maybe walk me through what that looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I am huge on routine. I'm huge on, on consistency. So every time the students come down to my space, they know what to expect. And it, it takes you know a month, four to six weeks to kind of build that routine. And, and once they do it, it's all of a sudden you realize like how smooth class can go. And you're, you're really amazed. We, we come in, I, I greet everyone in the hallway. We have assigned areas for our warm-up and we go through different warm-ups, whether it be locomotor, some gross motor stuff, strength, some flexibility, things just kind of get us moving. And that gives me an opportunity to check in with the kids. I'm very fortunate with only having six kids in the room. I have time to kind of interact at an individual level throughout our warm-up. So that five to seven minutes, I'm able to kind of take a, like a, a temperature of each student, like where they're at, like how they're feeling that day, how things are going, building that relationship. Like, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Hey, how are you feeling today? Oh, I saw you did this. That sounds really exciting. So having those moments of little interactions during our warm-up are huge. And then we kind of transition, whether we're learning a new skill, whether we're building upon the skills we've learned in the past, if we're getting to some type of game situation, and then we kind of go through there. I'm big on color coding. I'm big on visuals. The, the more I can have the students see and interpret through pictures and colors, the more success they're going to have. And that's also one less thing I have to worry about trying to manage that thing. So if I'm able to just manage the students, what they're doing, the skills they're working on, and try to streamline as much as I can without throughout my lesson. Have you found that all of that planning you do ahead of time, does it limit and improve? Does it help with the behaviors on the back end? Do you find if you've put more planning into what you're doing and that routine that you're trying to build, does it make your class go more smoothly with these students that maybe do have some difficult behaviors? I think so. In my experience, this, a lot of kids, they display anxiety and that the anxiety of the unknown. So if they know they're coming in, they're going to stand in this space, they're going to be interacting with this object, and then they're going to do X, Y, and Z throughout the lesson. It kind of takes one thing that they have to worry about off their plate. So being able to take all that time in the beginning of a lesson. And when I plan my lessons, I'm thinking about how I'm going to do each transition for each class. Because I'm going to have to do something a little bit different for class A than I'm doing for class B. It's just really challenging. Not challenging, but it makes you think how I'm going to go through each part of each lesson. And it's going to look different each time I do. I can do the same lesson four times a day, but every time it's going to look a little different how I'm transitioning how I'm having the students work together, how I'm having the staff work with the students. So it's a lot of thinking. I think one of my strengths is being able to kind of think on the fly, make that adaptation when I'm doing the, the lesson. If that's not working, I can quickly switch it up. And the kids are really good with that. As much as they're not flexible, they're good with just kind of like rolling with it. I can relate to that because a lot of my career has been spent supporting kids going to general physical education where I, I co-teach. But you know, and I'd love to tell the listeners that I have all this time to do all this pre-planning and know exactly what's being taught that day, but that just isn't the reality when you're covering. And I've had as many as eight or nine schools. It just isn't always a reality. So sometimes you're showing up and you're finding out right then and there what's actually happening. And it's less than ideal for everyone. But your point about being having to think quick on your feet, I mean, mm -hmm. it can be such a lifesaver in those moments. And if you kind of have a, a bag of tricks with you that, you know, you can lean on. 
it is it's a it's a really good point because it's such an important skill that you can have you brought up having pictures now do you mm-hmm. do you mean just of a skill or do you actually have picture schedules for your kids what and then where I'm gonna, if you can give a second answer two questions here where we all use a lot of pictures so where do you get yours from do you use a specific program do you just use google so if you can kind of answer both of those yeah i the, the visuals have been huge for me. I early on in my in my career here at, at this school, we did have a lot of students uh, ASD classroom, autism spectrum disorder classrooms. So I did use the visual schedules. People are familiar with the PECs, having the laminated schedules with the Velcro and all those great checklists that are, are so so useful. And even with some of my students now, they're 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 useful. Some some different token reward systems, things like that. But I just I'm just huge on visuals. I love using those things. Lately, I've been big on just kind of drawing stick figures. I used to pull different pictures from Google and just trying to Google image search, but then I kind of didn't like the way they were showing their pictures. They, uh, the skill just wasn't what I wanted, I'm trying to represent all my students, boys, girls, students from different backgrounds. I just, I wanted to, I, I started think overthinking it. Like if I just put a picture of a, a, a person throwing overhand, I want to make sure it showed, you know, I was being accommodating to everyone. So I just started uh, this year, I really just started drawing stick figures on different drawing programs. And that's just kind of easiest thing. I can manipulate them however I want. I like breaking it down almost like a task analysis when I'm doing different skills, whether it be throwing, rolling, kicking, shooting a basket, and the kids can kind of, we can kind of go by each step. And then there's different keywords that match with these, each step. And then of course, they're, they're always laminated. That's my favorite thing to do mm-hmm. and, and have them hanging up throughout the gym. I love putting, I have uh, those shoulder folders that fit over cones. It's my other, another favorite thing. All those cool things that, and then it, it's great going back full circle to our paraeducators. You can kind of be like, hey, don't forget to use this keyword. It's right here when they're throwing overhand that they start in the in the T pose and then they're throwing overhand that way. So it's a great way to kind of connect everyone and put everyone on the same page and, and keep our language the same throughout the our time together in PE. I'm really intrigued by you saying you draw your own. I'm the least artistic person ever. So I'm intrigued <laughs> by that. You mentioned that you do it in some drawing programs. What are those programs? Are they intuitive? Are they easy? Does it take a lot to learn? Tell me about those. No, I think that the cheesiest one I use right now is this, we have it on our school computers is just Microsoft Publisher. You know, it's just drawing different lines and, and stick figures and, and it worked out really easy. And then you can kind of save them and, and move them around however you want. Google Slides is another great one. I think those are the two I use the most because then Google Slides, you can print them out and not make the slideshow like we're all used to doing, but just kind of print them out as as signs or different visuals. And you can just draw your, your stick figures that way. I, I mean, I'm not, it's not groundbreaking. It is the most basic stick figures, but it shows which way the, the knees should be bending or the elbows, which way the face should be looking. And just those simple things. And the kids really kind of are, are very receptive to it. Well, and I liked what you said too, because when you use these programs, a lot of times they're just broad, right? It just says throw. It doesn't have any, and you brought up a great, you know, a great thing that we can use in teaching a task analysis. And if you wanted to cover step-by-step, I'm not aware of too many, if any picture programs that are picture uh, PE specific pictures that offer that. So if that's, if that's what you're looking for to show where the knee bend needs to be or opposition or arm angle or whatever you're looking for, it sounds like you have, even though you're being humble, it sounds like maybe you have cracked a little bit of a code on that. I want to jump back you brought up star charts and token rewards. Are those something that come with the student from their classroom teacher to your environment or are you creating those? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is a team effort here. In my, in my building, very fortunate. We have great classroom teachers. We have, we also have a full staff of behavior specialists. 
social workers, and school psychologists. So it is, it is a collaborative effort amongst all of us across the board to make our students successful. So a lot of times when a student brings a token reward system or a star chart, that comes from a behavior specialist or a school psych. They just kind of fill us in like, hey, like if it's on intervals, you know, if it's every 10 minutes, we're checking with the student. If it's based on task, you know, depending on some of my younger ones, it might be based on a task. If they're earning a, a star or some type of token for their, and they often are working for different things, you know, a student might be working for you know, a, prefer, a preferred activity. If they're working for riding on a scooter, playing with a different toy in their classroom, and they can do that in throughout the day, they're earning those things. Oftentimes I do, we do work together if there's things that need to be specific to our classroom and, and to the gym, but oftentimes they're bringing them from their, cl their classroom. If they're coming to you with three stars already earned and they only need to earn five stars to get their reward, do you have a space in your teaching uh, environment that they can, they've earned their reward, they then actually take a break from PE and go get their reward? Yeah, there is, I do have a, a little choke corner and, you know, we're all familiar with them to try to like create a space where there might be some calming activities or, or an area where a kid can kind of ground themselves. So I have that space. I'm also very fortunate the way my gym's set up. Outside my gym door is a little alcove that's separate from the hallway. So a student can go in there. But most of our students are pretty good in that, like, hey, we're going to earn it and then we'll earn it back in the classroom. So we'll finish PE. So they're not missing uh, PE time, which is really nice. And the staff who are working with these kids are great. And that they kind of can space them out. Like if the student is two stars away from the reward, they'll space them out nicely throughout the PE time that they they earn the fifth star as they transition transition back to the classroom, so they're able to have it there. So that's that's been really helpful. Some of the staff are just so so smart and know the kids so well. Staff can be really great about that. Quite truthfully, I agree. So as you look at your students that come to you and you're teaching them gross motor skills, locomotor skills, all of the above, do, are you grading kids? Do grades go home? Are you providing the parents updates? Does it just come through the IEP meeting and do you attend the IEP meeting? What's that side of things looking like? Yeah, so grading grading is a little bit challenging here. We we are slowly transitioning to a standards-based grading uh, system throughout the school, throughout our, our district. What's nice is being at the lower elementary, I've kind of been doing that since I've worked here. We're kind of just, it's, it's real tricky. It's kind of like your standard elementary report card. Like oftentimes there are just a couple objectives and you can kind of mark where the students are, are at. If they're below grade level, at grade level or exceeding grade level, that's always been challenging because we are in a specially designed program and just kind of making it clear. So that's where the comment section comes in and, and being able to interact with the parents. I do try to send things home, pictures, updates, little newsletters. My grading in a day-to-day -day within my class is I use a lot of rubrics that I've created or checklists that I'm working on. That's just kind of the monitor that the students grow throughout the year when we are introduced to a skill, when we go back to a skill throughout the year and kind of like throughout the year. Because oftentimes I'll see, I'll have students from kindergarten up to fourth grade and then they might transition over the middle school program. What about IEP meetings? Do you still have to attend those? I do not have to attend those, which is nice because I do have, this year I have just over 80 kids on my case. So if I didn't attend 80 different IEP meetings, I don't think I'd be teaching at all. So being able to to handle that, the kids, the students do have annual reviews and then they have their, their benchmarks, but that's usually handled by the case case manager, which is a classroom teacher, and then their their mental health team. There are sometimes they do ask for input and, and that's just shared, but oftentimes it's just I can just share some of my assessments that have been going on and also working with OT and PT, our occupational therapists, our physical therapists, they're able to kind of fill in those gaps when needed. You don't need to jump into like a program and put like a present levels or anything like that? No. Uh, when I first started BOCES uh, many, many years ago, that was part of what we had to do. And it was 
a very tedious task when, especially when you had a large caseload, but currently now, just because the way their IEPs are written, when they start attending my program, I don't have to do that. That must free up quite a bit of mental space for you. I would think it does. It does. It just, it just lets me focus on what they're learning and how to best fit their needs. So compared to itinerant adaptive PE teachers, you're not, you're not tracking goal progress. You're obviously still teaching and tracking progress. No, no doubt about that, but yeah. Do you do anything creative to track your kids' progress over the course of a year? Are you a Google Forms guy? Are you do are you still paper and pencil? Are you doing anything kind of neat? No, I'm kind of I guess old school when it comes to that. I do like to do like the Google Forms because I just I feel like I, I'm so busy during my lesson. I don't have time to like grab my tablet and start jotting some stuff down. But if it's just paper and pencil, you know, I can do it super quick and, and jump right back into it. I just have some different Excel sheets that I'm doing uh, for my students on their for their daily stuff for their unit stuff, for their unit, their pre and post assessments on their units. And and that's really it. I kind of old school that I don't change it up too much. I don't rock the boat. I see people doing some great things. I'm trying to steal ideas, but I'm just not there yet. There, There is a lot out there, but at the end of the day, you have to find something that works for you. So if it's paper and pencil, that's great. Now at your school, what about training for yourself? You teach a unique population, quite honestly. So when, when have you, have you received any training for de-escalation strategies, positive behavior supports? It seems like those would be really valuable skills to have in the population you're working with. Yeah. You know, and, and this has been, it's been great. I've learned a lot on the job. And I, I mean, if we go back to our, our college years, you know, back at Brockport, we were there together and we, we didn't really touch a lot on their behavior management or positive behavior interventions, things like that. They're starting to really push that now. And, and it's great. Um, I'm very fortunate where I host a lot of students from SUNY Brockport. They come in and see my program because it is unique and it is one of a kind in this area. A lot of what we do has been done in-house. We have every staff member goes through therapeutic crisis intervention, which is a de-escalation program. It was created by Cornell University and, and is taught in a, a lot of different schools throughout the area. We do a lot with restorative justice, restorative discipline. Those are different programs within our area that uh, certain staff has gone through. And then I just take in as much as I can. We have, like I said earlier, we have great uh, social workers, school psychs, and behavior specialists. So I just soak up as much as I can from them. And just learning how to work with each student is own little puzzle and trying to work it out. Like what language, what I may say to this student might not work What I, how I interact with the next student. Trial and error, it's learning from others. It's just all soaking it all in. Isn't that the truth that what works with one may not work with another? One thing that I'm realizing the further I've gotten away from Rockport, as you brought up, a blast from the past there, yeah. is my ability to stay current on best practices. I, I don't feel like I have a strong connection to cutting edge research that's going on. I am a member of Nick Peed, and so I do see you know some various journals. Or then if I see a journal, it seems like the research is just very hyper-specific, focused in an area that doesn't just impact me on the daily. So where are you going to find best practices? Have you found anywhere that you feel like keeps you up to date? Yeah, I, I think we're very fortunate. I know in California just as well, but our, our state um, organization, New York State AFER, is great. Um, I'm part of the board members, I'm part of the board there. So I'm always involved in the, the our state camp conference planning. And there are so many great people out there. So through our professional development through New York State Aford and our local area, I'm very fortunate to continue to work with people at SUNY Brockport. So knowing what the the new the future professionals are learning and how I can best fit their needs and how I can kind of bring that into my own teaching. Being able to work with a, a number of different people, just kind of learn that way. Trying to stay up to date and and pushing myself 
And I hope to share, I, sh I try to share as much as I can too, because that's how I learned. So if people have questions and they want to learn more, I'm more than happy to share. Not that I'm an expert. It's great to learn from others. Does New York State APER have a strong adapted side of things? There are some great people here. And I, I, we really push it. We've had some awesome people come into, to, into our state to go through things. And it's just great to learn from all of them. I think they really push each other, all the different sections within, within our state. So they're all equally as as well received. At your school site, I'm just wondering, do, are you aware, Has have the kids come to you through running into legal difficulties at their homeschools? And so you're inheriting litigious cases and you have to deal with lawyers or advocates or anything like that? There are some instances that does happen. It could be things that follow our students in. It could also be things that come from outside the home or community things. That's kind of challenging, but we have a lot of people at the beginning that are able to deal with that. So it doesn't really come across my desk, but they do make, they make us aware or when I'm trying to find out more about the student, they will, they will share information at kind of like on a need to know basis. If, if I'm saying things or interacting with a student, making sure that I'm doing it in a positive way, if there's not like bringing up trauma again, if they're coming from different background. So that's really it. And that's not too much like me that I have to address on my own level. And so what happens sometimes is parents will become frustrated in our public school system here. And they feel they need support of some kind in the form of an advocate or a lawyer who then starts attending the IEP meetings with us. And they will request records. So we have to show attendance and what we've done with the student. And so it's just really interesting to understand all these special ed timelines. And it, it sounds like maybe it doesn't impact you too much. But if a lawyer or a parent or an advocate requests records, you have five working days to get it to them. So you have to you have to be able to produce those within five days. And then it just it can make the cases kind of difficult because they just become contentious. You you can imagine anytime you add a lawyer or somebody from that sense that it can become contentious. So I just didn't know if you ever had a lawyer request your records or anything like that. No, fortunately, I, I think it, it it takes place kind of before a student comes here. There are been times when parents do get pushy or demand other things. And it's just it's just easy to kind of share what I have. And and usually it's not with the PE teacher. It's with the whole the service as a whole. So it's kind of a, a broad scope across what their student their children are receiving, their sons or daughters. It makes sense. It's like you're what comes after the process that I've had to occasionally sit through. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting in my district, you know, it's almost like it feels like you serve like your section of New York state where you are, like those districts utilize your BOCES program. I'm in a unified city school district of over 200 schools. And I've said that a few times on the podcast. And, and we do have a school that sounds similar to yours, that if it's not working at the comprehensive educational site, that then we try recommending this other school that is within our, our teachers there, et cetera, et cetera. But even then, oftentimes we see families or advocates or lawyers be like, we absolutely don't want that. We want this parentally placed private placement and they want the district to, to pay for it. So you can, you can understand why it becomes really messy when yeah. you start dealing with that and actually going to court. I luckily haven't had to testify, but it can get to that. But it sounds like you're the option that is offered and families oftentimes take it. So that's, that's kind of neat to learn about. Well, we're going to move into my favorite part of the show, the fast five. I just right. throw some questions at you. You can answer as quickly or as shortly as you would like. And it's just meant to learn a little bit more about you. And so number one on the fast five, your favorite piece of equipment. I'm going to be lame. It is my laminator. I love my laminator. It, if I just try to put like a piece of paper up in my gym, it will last all of about three minutes before it is ripped or torn or thrown. So my laminar makes my all my visuals last many, many, many classes. And I'm, I'm really happy that I have one. 
Now, do you utilize the big, massive laminator at your school, or do you have one of those mini ones where you put it in the sheet and then feed the sheet in? Yeah, I, got, I have a mini one that I can use right at my desk so I can whip things up super quick. Our school does have the big one, the poster size one. So that's great when I'm making big posters. And, and we have a lot of cool services here. So if I create a poster, I can send it over to my imaging service department and they'll create posters for us and then they'll laminate for us and everything. So it's, it's really cool. Oh, it's a cool resource to lean on. I, I just remember the days of showing up with pecs to like one of those massive machines and you're like trying to feed it in and <laughs> trying to cut and you have all this extra laminate. I mean, that's teacher problems right there, but I've been there. What about on the technology side? Do you have a favorite app you use when you're teaching? Do you use a lot of technology when you teach? A little bit. I The, the kids love music. So I think the, the, the app that happens most on my, my iPad is, is Spotify and it just, I have some Bluetooth remotes so I can do it from anywhere in the gym, play, pause, <clears throat> skip the song. So being able to just use that music and it, it's a great signal for our start, start and stop signals. And the kids really respond to it and it can really bring the energy up in the gym. I'm going to build off that then. What is the number one song on your playlist right now for your kids? What are they just jamming out to? Oh my gosh. It's the chicken wing, chicken wing. Oh, I'm going to have to look it up. I don't know. It, oh, but... They, I don't I don't want to sing it to be make it worse, but chicken wing, chicken wing, hot dog, macaroni. Exactly what kids would love though, right? You know, exactly yeah. what kids would love. There's a really cool app out, Eric, called Seconds Pro, and it's not free, hence the pro part of it. Yeah. Um, I think it's five bucks. You can actually go in and build timers, but it'll speak what you want. So if you want the kids to gallop, you can say gallop, and then you can pair a song to play with it. And then when the timer goes off, it will say whatever is happening next. Like you could say, you said you use colors. You could be like, hey, go to your... Go to the red area. Maybe you don't even do that, but you could say you could say go to. And it's been really great for me. Is I'll put an entire warm up in this app that is just anchored motor movements like arm circles and punches and things like that. And I'll pair a playlist with it, and it announces it out. And then the music starts, and then it gives a countdown to when it's ending, so the kids know when that one's over. And I built in a rest. So Seconds Pro is a pretty cool app that you can pair with music. That's awesome. I'm going to have to get that one and try. I liked it. I picked it up. I stole it from another teacher. That's what we do in teaching. We see a good idea and we take it. Oh, absolutely. Best teaching purchase under $100. That's not your laminator. I don't think your laminator <laughs> costs you $100. Oh, I want to yeah. jump in there and say that's not your laminator. Gosh, I think it has to be the stuff that I use in the gym. I, uh, my my speaker system is great. I got one of those Tailgater Pros, got it off of Amazon. And the, the battery is great on it. It's, it's all Bluetooth. I can leave it in the gym. If we're having class outside, I can take it out with me. And we can we can listen to music whether we're at the pool or out in the field doing things that way. And it's just been a great a great purchase for me. And it's you know I gotta I gotta have music. I keep my spirits up as I'm teaching my kids. So it's it's always it's always something that's with me. Music is absolutely critical. I'm yeah. curious. This isn't a question of our fast five, but I'm curious. Do you make your own playlists or do you just lean on the curated playlists that are within a Spotify or an Apple Music or a Pandora? A little bit of mix of both. Because then if you I found that sometimes you get a little some uh, explicit songs yep. you just kind of yep. use their their playlist so I'll, I'll, I'll create my own kids can uh send me bring postcards in if they want to request songs i don't i said i don't take requests during class because it gets too competitive it gets too confusing so if a kid brings me a written song request i'll add it to a playlist and that's really fun when they hear their songs come up on our playlist during class I like that. I'm actually taking note of that right now to infuse into my teaching. What about one thing in your teaching bag you just can't live without? I'm going to go abstract. And I think it's my ability to kind of think on my feet. When I'm teaching, I'm constantly looking at what my students are doing, you know, because that's what we do as, as teachers. I'm thinking, what do I need to do to, to twist this activity? What do I need to do to enhance this activity? 
What do I need to do to make the student more successful when they're doing something? So constantly my, my, my brain is turning and I'm looking for ways to make a student more successful than what they're already doing. And it, it, is it pulling the equipment this way? Is it getting a different piece for them? And it's just my flexibility and my ability to kind of just go with what my gut says and, and seeing what we can do. Love that answer. I've never thought of that question being answered in that way as the person asking it even. <laughs> it's I was like, oh, like maybe they have some cool thing they use besides a phone or a computer and they, and they want to say it. I love that you answered the question that way because it really speaks to more broadly what we do as teachers. Yeah, we show up with the backpack on and there's things in it, sure, but we have this toolbox that is us as the teacher. And so I really appreciate how you just answered that. That was great. Yeah, thanks. Last one coming up. The best piece of advice that you would offer another teacher? A couple of things. I think trust in what you're doing. We're, we're here for the, ben the, the benefit of our students and, and giving them opportunities that we were afforded or we maybe never never had. Take risks. I think, I, I think we're afraid as younger teachers to kind of like fail or have a lesson bomb. And, and that's okay because I think those are the lessons we learn the most from or those are the activities we learn the most from is is, is be okay. And, and and then also admitting it to your students, I think is very empowering. Like taking the time to, to stop and be like, hey, boys and girls, I made a mistake. We should have been doing this. And then that is a teachable moment for them. Like, oh, like Mr. Cole made a mistake. That's okay. So it's okay if I make mistakes. So all these little things are always in and just you're just layering different things on top of one another, every every life skill. And then have fun with it. If you're not having fun doing teaching PE, then gosh, I don't know why, why you're doing it. Like, I think that's it. Take risks, have fun and, and learn from everyone. You said a few things in there that really resonated with me and the part about like, telling your kids when you don't have it. So I, I do something similar. I, I've paused the group and I'll be like, Hey, that was bad teaching. I have high schoolers. So I talk a little more, you know, yeah. I guess a little bit, but I'm like, Hey, that was my bad. That was, that was bad teaching gang. Uh, here's, here's what I'm looking for. And and you, you do have to take risks. And I remember when I started this job, my dad is former principal, as I mentioned, and I was overwhelmed about the job. Of course, you're a, a young teacher. I just left the master's program at Brockport. And I remember talking to my dad. I'm like, dad, I don't feel like I know everything. And my dad was like, well, the second you do feel that you need to get a new job because you will never know everything. And that is just stuck with me forever. And I, I think it speaks to exactly what you're saying right now. Yeah, certainly. I, it, every day I learn something new. Like, and like you said, as soon as that that's not happening, it's like, wow, something's wrong. I got to look back and see what, what I need to change. So bonus question that this conversation has made me think about, do you reflect on your teaching? Do you do a journal? Like, do you do anything like that? Uh, not physically, but I'm constantly thinking because it, it's not stuff that like, keeps me up at night. Maybe sometimes it does, but I'm always thinking, <clears throat> through my interactions like oh I did this with um, student this student today it didn't work out or how do I I see this student's really struggling how do I connect with them I'm very reflective as how I interact with my students and also throughout my lessons and I think I'm fortunate where I, I am in one space so I am teaching you know one to two lessons a day so being able to, to make those tiny tweaks throughout the day have been really beneficial and, and how I teach the first thing in the morning is going to be different than how I teach the last class in the afternoon. But I'm always thinking, I think that's another huge thing for, for young teachers to do is, is look back and, and see what was missing or see what you can change and, and give it a try. It's interesting being at this phase in my career, and I'm sure you remember this, but when we went through student teaching, we had a journal. And it just felt like an arduous extra task. And I don't, I don't journal now, but I'm similar to you though. I, I am reflective on the lesson and then I have to do it. But like, I do understand why they're, they asked us to do that now, now that I'm at this point in my career to be, to at least be reflective, even though I'm not putting pen to paper. Right. It's like you always hear, it didn't make sense at the time, but later on, it makes a lot more sense. 
Absolutely. Where can people find you, Eric? If they want to connect with you, if they want to learn about your teaching, where can they find you? Probably the most easy, the easiest one to get to is I'm on Twitter. That's one of the one that is most common. Um, it's Mr. Cole PE. So I want you spell that for everyone though, because your name, your name's last name spelled a little different. A little different. So it's Mr. M R K O H L P E. And that's and, it. Uh, Web. Do you have a website or anything? No, I don't have a website. I'm not there yet. I, I've been working on it because I, I do like sharing things and, and I should be getting on that, that train soon. But I do share a lot of things on Twitter and, and it's a, it's been, since I started using Twitter, it's been a great resource to connect with all these great people, people that you've had on the podcast already. Like they are awesome to, to see what they're up to. And it's kind of, it's it's made our world a little bit smaller, which is kind of cool because there's people from all over that we're able to connect with and interact with and share ideas and even little tweaks here and there have been have been great. Without a doubt. And I mean, just from connecting with each of you that have been guests, I leave everyone being like, whoa, learned. I learned so much. So it's been great. I'm curious, are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Are you going to Shape America? Is there anything in New York going on? No, unfortunately, I won't be at Shape this year. Hopefully next year, it's going to be at Cleveland. And that's just a little drive for me. So I'm going to be back there. I'm skipping a jump for you there. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to get back there. Seattle's a little long. I was at New Orleans last year which was great. We do have a lot of different conferences coming up across the state, some some zone conferences or district conferences people are familiar with. So I'll be at a couple of those presenting. I'm always I'm always willing to present. It's one of my favorite things to do is to share with others and learn from others and I think getting to different areas across different states, different conferences is the best way because what we're doing in our place is completely different from what you're doing in San Diego. So if you need me out there, I'll be more willing to come out. I've been to San Diego yet. Well, okay. the the scape, uh, the National Adaptive PE Conference, as they call it, will be not San Diego, but it will be Southern California next year. I think it was in they they alternate Northern and Southern. We we had it back in 2018, uh, and so we I don't think we'll have it directly in San Diego. But next fall, it's usually in November, Eric. You should definitely consider getting across the country to Southern California for the National Adaptive PE Conference. Yeah. Well, Eric, this was a ton of fun. Thanks for being on, and absolutely, we'll see you later. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris.